You are listening to Love, Maine Radio, hosted by Dr. Lisa Belisle and recorded at the studios of Maine Magazine in Portland. Dr. Lisa Belisle is a writer and physician who practices family medicine and acupuncture in Thompson. Show summaries are available at lovemainradio.com. Portland Art Gallery is proud to sponsor Love, Maine Radio. Portland Art Gallery is the city's largest and is located in the heart of the Old Port at 154 Middle Street. The gallery focuses on exhibiting the work of contemporary Maine artists and hosts a series of monthly solo shows in its newly expanded space, including Ingen Jorgensen, Brenda Sirioni, Daniel Corey, Jill Hoy, and Dave Allen. For complete show details, please visit our website at artcollectormain.com. Love, Maine Radio is also brought to you by Aristel, a lingerie boutique on Exchange Street in Portland's Old Port, where every body is seen as a work of art and beauty is celebrated from the inside out. Shop with us in person or online at aristel.com. Matty Oates is the former program director for Tall Ships Portland, and he currently works as media manager at Shipyard Brewing Company. He and his brother also host a podcast called Bach to Bach, in which they discuss both classical music and beer. Thanks for coming in. Thank you. Happy New Year. Thank you. Um, so did I pronounce this correctly? Bach to box. It's B-A-C-H and then B-O-C-K. Bach to Bach, yeah. There, it's it's seen a lot of variations over the years. Um, uh, Bach being Johann Sebastian Bach, the, the composer, and then B-O-C-K. Bach is a is a type of German beer. So we we thought we were pretty clever when we came up with that name. So there was beer involved in in creating that name as well. So it came out pretty well. How long have you been doing this podcast? We just hit uh, two years, and we've we've gone through a little bit of a a lull at the moment, just because both of us lead fairly busy lives. So, uh, getting content out there has been a bit tough recently, but uh, it's it's always a lot of fun. We've had a lot of great chances to interact with the local music community and and the uh, both beer and classical music community around the country as well through phone interviews or visiting musicians. Uh, it's been great. Is this becoming more popular, beer and classical music? Well, from our very biased perspective, I'd like to think so. But uh, we are seeing there's there's a great uh, organization in town um, run by the PSO called Symphony and Spirits. Uh, takes uh, young folks from 21 to 39 and uh, rotates through uh, different local watering holes before PSO concerts. Uh, there's either uh, a beer or a cocktail designed specifically for the program coming up and for 25 bucks it's a chance for young people to mingle learn a little bit about the program before they all then just walk down to Merrill Auditorium and get to see a, an amazing performance so um, all in all the scene's coming up slowly but it's coming up I remember interviewing Emily Isaacson and she had um, she had beer happening on beach blankets in the summertime and oh, yeah. at the bowling alley and she's really trying to um, bring this back into the more popular vernacular I guess yeah well you know why not it's we we've created this mystique around classical music that you need to sit in a seat and be completely docile and 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 quiet and um, we we love the idea that if you really appreciate a point just like a jazz musician if a solo finishes it, it shouldn't be taboo to express that in some way, shape, or form. And um, you know, there, there used to be beer at concert halls. Why can't there be uh, beer again? So we we like we think it's a good combo. It it kind of breeds uh, in moderation. It breeds a really good time, really good night out. Do you still play the violin? Absolutely. I um, still teach a bit as well. Um, Kevin and I both. My brother Kevin Oates. Um, 
uh, both started quite young. Uh, I saw Elmo playing on Sesame Street with Isak Prohm and the great violinist when I was three. And I thought it was the greatest thing in the world. So after pestering my parents weeks in, weeks out, uh, I finally started taking around four years old. And um, now it's, it's, it's just a great release. It's a great, it's like an old friend. Um, but Kevin's taken it to a much more professional degree, uh, whereas I kind of keep it on the back burner. So he's working with the Maine Youth Rock Orchestra and also the Maine Academy of Modern Music, is that right? Uh, he did uh, in the past, but Kev's now out on his own as, uh, as the Maine Youth Rock Orchestra is its own nonprofit, uh, entering their, they've just passed their third year, they've just released a, uh, a documentary as well about their uh, tour that they took. It's so the, the Maine Youth Rock Orchestra, for those who don't know, it's a chance for students 12 to 18 to um, take their, their classical instruments or their, their orchestral instruments and uh, play with visiting rock bands. And not ju- they've, played with, uh, they've played with Spencer Alby, they've played with, um, um, uh, what, what's his name? Sorry, they played with Guster this past year at uh, Thompson's Point, um, Gregory Allen Isakoff. Uh, a lot of great names, so uh, it's a chance for kids to realize that their instruments aren't just to be relegated to the formal concert hall, but they can take it and they can use it in every way, shape, and form in every genre of music out there. So it's a uh, it's a really wonderful nonprofit. People should check it out. So, so you're actually now doing the media for your brother. Oh no, he's. Uh, no, I was he, just kidding. I was he, just, <laughs> just putting that nice plug in. I yeah, was appreciative yeah. of that, and the sibling love that you were giving him. Oh, go oh, yeah, no, absolutely. He's um, I he's the reason I moved here to Maine. So, uh, I was out uh, overseas for a very long time, and uh, I just saw him doing really amazing things here with Myro, and uh, and I I saw a chance to come back to the U.S. and and he was the reason. So. Um, Portland then and hence Portland so uh, and I've got to see him build this thing from from nothing to a, a really successful nonprofit where did you grow up Albany New York the um, it's, it's on the way to everywhere but it's uh, there's a lot of people from upstate New York that have come up to Portland I, I don't know what that says about both places but um, we grew up on a farm in uh, in Albany New York and um, we used to come up to Agunquit. Our grandparents had a cottage there since the 40s. So from the earliest stage, we were just kind of running on Agunquit Beach. And then the early 90s, when it blew up and Route 1 became a parking lot. And um, so uh, Kev went to school at USM Gorham. And he came back then after afterwards. And then I, you know, I followed suit. We've always kind of had this love affair with Maine. What were you doing in Europe? Um, I was racing uh, classic yachts. Uh, we were based out of the south of France. Um, and yeah, it was it was kind of the greatest job of, of all. It was uh, this 1911 uh, big boat classic called Marikita. There was only four uh, made back in the day. It's the equivalent of the America's Cup boats of today. And it was uh, it was based out of the south of France, and we would spend the summers racing around the Mediterranean and hitting up uh, all the Rivieras and the Balearics and. Um, and then the winter, we would just take care of this boat, which needed an amazing amount of work. Um, and then we, and, and just traveling and exploring, it was fantastic. So I'm, I'm trying to remember my geography, but I don't think that Albany has a lot of ocean around. It does not have a lot of ocean. You are absolutely right. Uh, when I tell people I used to work on boats, that's actually the first thing they say is, is it's not a lot of ocean front. Uh, my very first boat was, um, 
the Sloop Clearwater, which was started by Pete Seeger back in the late 60s. Uh, he had built this as a, a replica of a 17th century Dutch sloop to kind of bring focus back to um, the, the cleaning up of the Hudson. This was right around the time of the 1972 Clean Water Act and uh, that huge uh, spurt of environmental legislation around that time. And uh, this was a rallying point for him to start cleaning up the river. And that was that was my very first boat. I, I had gone hitchhiking abroad for five months when I was 18. And I came back and I just took the first job that I could find, which happened to be on this boat I'd never sailed before. Uh, and that was the beginning of the end. So uh, That's unusual, isn't it? Don't most people get into sailing or boats because they've grown up with it, essentially? Yeah. Uh, I was one of the few people that hadn't ever been on a boat before. Everyone else had grown up sailing opties and and J boats, and uh, especially around here in Maine, the sailing is such a, a Casco Bay is one of the greatest spots in the world to grow up sailing, and uh, that was uh, I was a rarity in that case. Uh, but I just fell in love with it right. Off, I wasn't even on board the boat. I was still a quarter mile away, and I could see the top of the mast from over this hill, and that was it. I was I was a goner. So what was it that I guess spoke to you about that that's that scene that the top of the mast that was calling to you from afar? Oh, I, I still don't know if I could put it into words, but it is, um, I think in the beginning, there's the romance of it. There is uh, what we all picture tall ship sailing to be, or, you know, sailing of, of, of old to be, wind through your hair, salt spray, and all that jazz. And that, that is the hook. That's what got me in. Um, but then everything else that came after it, the, uh, the intense discipline, the, uh, the, the need to care for the ship, care for your, your shipmates, um, and a, an amazingly uh, tight community. And the, the, honestly, the life skills that came out of it, I, I think it was probably the best education I could have ever hoped for. Just the uh, learning empathy, learning, not that I didn't have it before, but, but being able to realize small social dynamics within a team and, and really trying to take that on and, and, uh, and, and come up with a great result each day. and, and uh, learning to keep a cool head when everything's falling apart around you, when stuff's breaking, when there's a storm at 4 a.m. and you are in the middle of the Atlantic, that kind of stuff, that's a, you know, that's a forge that uh, you don't find a lot of other places. Um, and I think that's what kept me, just this, uh, uh, this completely different universe. You worked as the program director for Tall Ships Portland. Tell me about that. I came to Portland, uh, came off boats, came to Portland, and again was gonna just take on any any job that came my way. I was just happy to be be around my brother again, and uh, we were we were just kind of perusing jobs online one night, and Kev goes, "Betty, have you seen this?" And sure enough, here was a call for a, a program director for. The local uh, nonprofit 501c3 Tall Ships Portland. They were formed in 2015 to uh, help put on the Tall Ships Festival that came through that year, um, and they were going to put on their uh, take on their first full-time employee. So I uh, sat down with their uh, board president Alex Agnew, and we we were meant to have a quick 30-minute coffee. It ended up as as four hours talking about sailing, as as you know sailors do. We just kind of ramble, which I'm doing right now. Um, and uh, that was the beginning of the end. So we, we had a, uh, a two great summers of, of sailing programs. And the, the main mission, most people think it's a, uh, 
a nonprofit that does events. The events help fuel the real uh, mission, which is youth education at sea. The idea that uh, uh, getting teenagers out, uh, you know, high schoolers out, is is one of the best ways that they can. I don't even know the right word here. It's it's one of the best educations they can ever hope for. They learn how to sail, but the sailing's just almost a metaphor. It's just the best classroom. They they learn the same things I got to learn. They learn um, true teamwork in the in the idea that you know this is not going to get from point A to point B unless everybody pitches in. Um, everyone's on ground zero. No one is the cool kid. No one's the nerd. No one's the jock. It is. Everyone's out of their element, and they are given a challenge that they have to rise to meet. Otherwise, they don't get to where they're going. Um, and uh, and it, thankfully, with the help of uh, Falmouth uh, Assistant Principal John Radke, he also accredited their summer one-week program. So now kids who go out sailing with them also get a, uh, a semester's worth of high school credit, which is a, a really great validation of that education as well. Do you think that that's something that we're lacking in today's um, educational system? And not to diss teachers, because my mom is a teacher. I think that they work very hard and do a great job. But is there something about teamwork that maybe we could use a little bit of extra? Yeah, I, I agree with you there. My uh, both both my parents are teachers as well, and um, so and and it is an intensely difficult job uh, to be a teacher, especially nowadays in a, in an age where kids can pull up an answer to a question on their phone usually faster than a teacher can even say it. Um, but yet, learning, uh, utilizing different classrooms, especially a classroom where it forces people to put the phone down and turn their eyes up, that's a huge uh, benefit that I, I think people still are, are hesitant to latch on to. Um, and, uh, yeah, and again, it, the, the, they do learn how to sail, but the actual lesson is so much more. It, it's just a great classroom. You can teach anything on it. You can teach physics when you're talking about friction coefficients in pulleys. You can talk about the Bernoulli principle, uh, you know, what makes airplanes fly, with the idea of a lift over a curved surface when you're looking at sails. You can um, d teach how to clean a toilet. <laughs> you can do, you know, anything at all. Um, well, you can teach trigonometry with astro-navigation. Uh, any subject you can possibly think of can be taught on board these boats. So it's, it's an intensely useful tool. Well, what I, I guess what I was wondering about was the way that it seems that we have gone is a very competitive um, direction with mm. our kids. And I have three, so I've seen that this has evolved over time. Um, that it seems often very individually focused, uh, especially yeah. in the suburbs. We have a lot of, um, it's very important for people to get into the right schools. And in order to do that, they're kind of sometimes clawing over each other in order to be the best. Sure. Which is kind of understandable. But in the end, you know, when you get out of your great education, you still need to be able to work with people. So I'm wondering if this is something that tall ships and other um, organizations like it can kind of fill a void with? Absolutely, and, and, and Tall Ships is just one of so many great organizations that offer that uh, here in Maine. Uh, Ripple Effect is, is another, and you're absolutely right. The individual ambition is fantastic, and, and it has driven so many wonderful things, but um, you're right at the end of the day, uh, not everyone can go it alone, and, and you do need to know how to work with a team. Um, and when to give, and when to push, and when to compromise, and when to support, and and that sort of thing is, um, yeah, is taught through all these great experiential uh, modes. And 
I, I, yeah, that was probably I was I was an apt, I was a jerk when I was growing up. I uh, I was so up myself and um, not you know, not outwardly, but I I was so th- I, w- I was right about everything. And learning to just shut up and listen was. Uh, a great lesson on board these things and realizing that I don't have all the answers all the time and it's okay to be wrong and it's okay to ask for help and it's okay to do these things that was um, and realizing yeah how I fit into the larger puzzle of a team was was instrumental growing up well I think it's also something that I've seen with musicians who work for a long time with other musicians that especially when I when I've watched Spencer because he's our um, producer for the radio show I've seen how he interacts with his team and it really is you really have to learn to read one another you have to learn to give you have to learn to take and it and it seems like that's something that actually comes over time Mm. so it's not necessarily something that you can get out of even you know a semester working in a classroom together right it's true it's um it 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 would be a piece of a much larger puzzle and experience is the best educator it's uh and and I, I hate to quote it because I, I just just saw it yesterday. But you know, Star Wars uh, when Yoda says failure is the best teacher, um, and uh, yeah, it, it it takes takes messing up. It takes uh, a lot of different classrooms. You know, to, to use a uh, to refer to a lot of different uh, you know forms of education. But it um, yeah, it takes a long time to get there. But it, the the semester, or even just a week on board a boat, it's so intensive. It's like a, you know immersion uh, immersion learning, where you're chucked into a completely foreign environment, and uh, your senses have to be firing all the time. And uh, it does help. I've I've seen I've seen some students make amazing transformations. Not everyone, uh, and there's really no predicting who it's really going to resonate with, but there are some students who have come back as completely different people um, in a very short amount of time. So, Does it also help you to listen, to learn to listen to yourself versus, I mean, I, you talked about turning the phone off because sometimes when you're out on the ocean you don't have access to the internet right. and paying attention to the world around you, but also to pay attention to yourself and your intuitive response to things or even your learned response to things like the weather, I guess, or yeah. other people. Yeah, trusting trusting one's gut is something I've I've learned and, and you know talking about messing up, I've learned the hard way. Times where I've had the gut feeling and ignored it. And then stuff's gone wrong. That's um, yeah, that that education's been wonderful in in the idea that now when I have that gut feeling, I react to it. Uh, and even now, I, I, it may be wrong, but I, nine times out of ten, it's been the right thing. And like you say, with weather, um, it's it's you'd rather be you'd rather have prepared for it and be wrong than throw caution to the wind and and then be wrong because. Uh, things can go much, much worse. Do you mind me asking about one of these times of, um, I guess, failure and not trusting your intuition? Because I think sometimes yeah. these are things that are good for us to hear about other people because we all assume we're the only ones. True. Um, I did, a lot of it was just dealing with um, feeling like uh, like a, a, I should check, you know, if you... If we're sailing and I look at something, I look at a line, you know, where we're, we've been sailing out to Bermuda for four days and we're, we're always checking to make sure that that no lines are chafing or nothing's 
nothing's wrong. And uh, to the you know, the times where you see something and the, the gut reaction says that's going to chafe through, and whether you're tired and it's because it's been you know you've been up for you, you're on working on two hours sleep, three hours sleep, and just kind of out of it you go it'll be fine till morning and the next thing you know it's two hours later and the lines parted and uh and everyone's being called up to to take in this sale that's now flopping about because because you know i i didn't trust my gut on that um and times where you know we've we've broken you know broken masts and broken spars and uh um we you know days we we went out sailing we probably shouldn't have uh, been out in, in weather that was too strong and um this was this was racing not voyaging but uh and just yeah people um people getting hurt people uh or, or gear breaking um and just seeing where seeing where pride seeing where you know for lack of a better term machoism uh can just lead you down the wrong path and attempt to prove someone wrong or better somebody and it just it gets it gets you nowhere in the end it really doesn't so is this part of that learning that you're not always right that you were talking about with regard to yourself when you were younger oh yeah yeah learning to learning to be wrong is i think the best thing that we could possibly learn is just um and and, and a lot of times realize, you know, on, on a boat, the, the hierarchy is very rigid it, and, and needs to be because because the responsibility flows uphill, that person at the top of the hill needs to then have the ability to control all the variables. So, you know, a captain um, may need to be a bit of a tyrant, but it's because if anything goes wrong, they bear all the responsibility. Um, and there's there's no other way to it. So there's times learning to hold your tongue, even if you don't believe things right. And and uh, the only time you really can speak up is if you believe people are you know in jeopardy. You know safety's in jeopardy. Um, but yeah, learning to swallow pride, learning to just accept the fact that you may not agree, but you aren't wearing the you know the captain pants. So that's uh, you just got to suck it up and and go with it because you may not have all the answers. And again, I wonder if there isn't something cultural or societal or educational that hasn't kind of started us all down the path of believing that we all have to be right and we have to be right the first time. It's, yeah, it's true. We um, and I I completely agree with you. We've we've gone down that path, but at the same time, it feels like a lot of us don't. Then, if we are wrong, don't have we don't want to accept the responsibility that we were wrong. Um, uh, and and that's the other thing, just being able to raise your hand and say, "My name is Matty Oates, and I was wrong." Like that. That's a, um, I feel that's a, a lesson that should be taught more. Um, and um, yeah, no, it's it's um, yeah, valuable life skills that I think, like you were saying before, in in the strive to be more competitive and and be more individualistic. Uh, we we miss some of the most crucial. But my mom's a preschool teacher, and she has all these these uh, parents who are uh, at age um, uh, four and five. They're wondering if their kids are ready for kindergarten, and are they going to do well in the tests? And she's like, "Hold on, hold on. Let's can they share at playtime? Do they know how to take turns? Do they know you know that these are the real skills that will get them through life? Colleges are not going to be looking at their preschool test scores. They don't care those. But uh, but." You know, if you can share with somebody, that's going to make you a good friend, a good you know, uh, a, a good partner, a good business partner, um, and it's so important. 
You decided that you were going to switch gears and go from the nonprofit world to work with Shipyard Brewing Company, but you've actually been able to continue to bridge that gap, and, and you found that there are important ways that working in a for-profit situation can help with the nonprofit situation. Absolutely. Um, I started working uh, with Shipyard Brewing uh, as program director of Tall Ships because Shipyard was a great uh, supporter and sponsor of the, the nonprofit. So I got to work closely with the, uh, the staff there uh, through our events. Uh, and, and, and then going, starting to work with Shipyard in June of this year, it, uh, it really opened my eyes to how much uh, Shipyard and, and the, really the entire brewing community here in Maine gives back to uh, to the, the nearly 13,000 nonprofits that are in Maine alone. So there's a there's a there's a lot of people with strong missions and great hearts and uh, but it's tough to run a nonprofit on your own and to see the the astronomical rise of the brewing industry and then how they give back. Uh, I had no idea Shipyard gives back to the number of nonprofits that it does. Um, and uh, it, it, it adds such a feeling of uh, community, being able to be at these events and help support everything from uh, you know, Portland Trails and um, uh, uh, Spurwink and, and some of these organizations that do great and much needed work in, in Maine. Well, it's interesting having worked kind of in that that in between where I've had experience in the for-profit and the non-profit worlds, um, sometimes for-profit gets a bad rap. Mm. Sometimes, you know, you're seen as like the evil organization that's money-grubbing. Right. But then when you realize that not only are they supporting non-profits, but they're also supporting people's families and yeah. paying their health insurance and making it possible <laughs> for people to have roofs over their heads, it's, it's easier to be less judgmental I guess yeah that's that's so true um, and it kind of comes back to like the yin and the yang we wouldn't be able to have one without the other we couldn't have nonprofits if there were no for-profits to support them and and and, and having been through not just non not just through uh, tall ships Portland but also um, before I went out to uh, to France all the boats I worked on were 501c3 nonprofits doing environmental education or historical education. Um, so from the beginning, realizing how tight these budgets have to be and how important fundraising is and how how important donors are. Um, and yeah, without without those for profits, we uh, we would have great intentions with the nonprofit world, but uh, but no way to execute. So you're you're completely right. They're so integral. And I think that's, again, something that maybe when I was growing up, and when I, all this stuff I'm saying to you, I've kind of experienced myself. So it's not as if I'm accusing other people of no, you know, no, feeling no. a certain way about <laughs> for-profit organizations. I think, you know, when you go through, when I went through my academic training to become a doctor, you know, there's this sort of sense that there's these ivory towers that we all can live within. And then all of the, all the people down below who actually have to work for a living and scrub <laughs> the toilets and do the for-profit stuff, somehow there's something base about that because they're doing they're working for money right right and I think that's a transition that we all have to go through this this sense that you know there's this idealistic view of the world that you get to um, be part of when you're in the academic field but mm -hmm. then once you get out there's there's this reality of life yeah the, uh, there was a great article written I think 2008 maybe 2009 uh, published in the New York Times it was in one of their Sunday uh, Sunday inserts it, I, I believe the title was a case be made for working with your hands 
and it was a guy who had uh, an English degree from University of Chicago. He'd done a lot of freelance writing. He'd done a lot of work at think tanks in D.C. And he um, he left it all. He did a bit of freelance writing, but he left it all to open a motorcycle repair shop because he'd been tinkering. And um, he realized bit by bit that the thought process, the actual analysis that went through breaking open a motorbike was at the time for him far more real than the think tank stuff he was doing in DC. Um, and that's not to put down you know, what that, that work and that, which is in, you know, integral. But um, he, he brought up that same idea of, uh, you know, we passed the, the lineman working in a storm to repair a transformer and we, we say, oh my, what a tough job, but is there a little tinge of jealousy in there as well? Like, do we actually want to be the one kind of performing this crucial task? Um, uh, and that, that's another thing that uh, we, we did focus on a little bit with Tall Ships with the idea of the maritime trades and, and how we have, um, we've turned away from promoting the trades. It's been this uh, constant stream that everyone needs to go to a four-year university and that's it. And that's why we've got electricians making six figures because there's nobody out there. Um, and it's, it's re the, the thinking is not only incredibly um, difficult, but with a very, uh, if, if you get it wrong, it's a, it's a pretty abrupt end uh, working with AC power. So, you know, you got to make sure you're thinking clear and thinking ahead and, and thinking through everything that you do. And same thing with, uh, with plumbing and, and engineering. And uh, there's, Maine has so many opportunities. There's a boatyard Washburn and Dowdy up the way that make these uh, state-of-the-art tractor tugs that we see plowing the, you know, the, the waterways here. Um, and they are having a tough time finding kids at 18 year, years old to uh, sweep the floors of the workshop for 18 bucks an hour, which if you're 18 years old is, is a great wage around here. And they will take you and they'll see what you're interested in, whether it's welding or whatever, and they'll put you in an apprenticeship and, um, and provide you with a great career in the state of Maine. And uh, I, don't, I feel like a lot of people don't even know these exist. So. Um, yeah, sorry, that was a bit of a tangent there. <laughs> but well, it's uh, I think it's an important thing for us to keep considering that we live within a community and different types of intelligence are valuable. Yeah, you, you can have the type of intelligence that enables you to get a PhD and study something at the university. You can have the type of intelligence that enables you to keep. The power on yeah. you can have the type of intelligence that enables you to build a boat and it's not that any of these are better or worse or more valuable or less valuable they're right. all very valuable and they keep us all moving forward together right so i think this took i'm okay with that tangent since um i, I believe it so <laughs> I, I guess that's the bottom line we're talking and i'll let you go on that one i've been speaking with maddie oates who is the former program director for tall ships portland who currently works as media manager at shipyard brewing company he and his brother, Kevin, also host a podcast called Bach to Bach in which they discuss both classical music and beer. This has been a fun conversation. Thanks for coming in. Thank you for having me. Love, Maine Radio is brought to you by Maine Magazine, Aristel, Portland Art Gallery, and Art Collector Maine. Audio production and original music are by Spencer Albee. 
Our editorial producers are Paul Koenig and Brittany Cost. Our assistant producer is Shelby Wasik. Our community development manager is Casey Lovejoy. And our executive producers are Kevin Thomas, Rebecca Falzano, and Dr. Lisa Belisle. For more information on our production team, Maine Magazine, or any of the guests featured here today, please visit us at lovemainradio.com.